Welcome to The Classicist with Victor Davis Hansen for the Hoover Institution. This is Charles Cook, editor of National Review Online, filling in for Troy. Uh, I'm here uh, with Victor after a remarkable election night. Uh, Victor has written a couple of uh, columns on the subject. What are your initial thoughts? Well, initial shock is that, and I have great respect for many of the never-Trumpers, but I was watching some prominent commentators on TV, and I couldn't quite fathom the train of thought. And it was something five stages such. Number one was Trump was a monster who shouldn't have been elected. Stage two is he won't be elected. Stage three is I'm very happy that he was elected because he... uh, And then stage four is all of a sudden there's possibilities that I cannot believe that George W. Bush didn't bring us, or even Reagan, with the House and the Senate and the state legislature and movement. And then stage five is I'm I'm thinking about descending into the muck to advise him what he should do to save him him from himself. And I just thought to myself, logically, that's an unsustainable train of thought. So where should they go? Well, they they should say... um, if people had have taken my advice, we wouldn't be where we are now. And therefore, I'm not sure whether that advice was... If what where we are now is better than the alternative, then I shouldn't have advocated the alternative. With the qualifier, I may say that this is just temporary jubilation and six months the true Trump will come out and it will be much worse than having a Hillary presidency but right now I'm confused by the disconnect I don't know what the what the sense of the never Trump or what was the point of it if George Will take one example I'm not trying to pick on him is so happy right now and he, he I was he was gushing and he had all sorts of wonderful ideas but the logical question is why didn't you say that the night before the election. So the, there are presumably two acceptable positions for those who were against Trump to take. One is that although there are some opportunities, it may still be the case that Trump's election will be bad for the right and for the country in the long term. And that will take a time to determine right. that. And the second uh, would be, well, I was against him. I got it wrong uh, in terms of his electability, uh, but now I'm... I'm uh, bereft of ownership. I have no political party uh, that I'm tied to, and I will sit and watch and call balls and strikes. What what do you think the breakdown is in the commentary between those three positions? It seems to me that there is that third point, because I don't know too many publicly who have said those two things. It seems much more likely, from what I'm reading, there's a few people who... uh, I read a columnist today who said, don't fool yourself, he's bad news, he's still bad news, he'll always be bad news. But more likely is the third position that now that this thing is over, I'm surveying the Supreme Court for the next 30 years, and I can see that this is better, as bad as he is, than Hillary's likely appointees, or Senate, House, state legislators, governorships, Supreme Court presidency, wow, they're all lined up in a row, and suddenly they're, he- they're, they're like children in a candy store. It's fracking on federal lands, end of the estate tax, redo the tax code, end of uh, uh, Department of Education's intrusion, 
uh, coal exports to China. I've heard all these things coming from people who who thought that that wouldn't be the case. So that seems to be the more likely that when I collate all of the people who were never Trump, suddenly they're giddy, not about Trump, obviously the person, but giddy about the moment. So what do you? Why do you think never Trump is, and I was one, got it wrong? I think that they. Um, they looked at Trump the person as a Bulgarian and they were so repelled what he represented in their sense of sensible Burkean conservatism, sober and judicious contact, con, uh, comportment, control of the personal appetites, what they thought was the conservative. And I think they lost, A, a little bit of historical um, perspective, both on the presidency that we've had people presidents like Kennedy and Clinton on the liberal side. We've always had conservatives that were pretty wild and they thought that he was unique or singularly bad and vulgar and I don't think he, if I look back at the election of 1824 or 26, or 28 and I think of what Jackson and Adams said about each other or what they said about Lincoln and other candidates, I don't think he was that historically aberrant. And then the second thing is uh, there was a class element to it that they felt that he's a Bulgarian, the way he looked, the way he talked, the way he acted, and that he appealed and brought out the worst instincts and other Bulgarians. And so that emotionally they felt that certain people in the conservative establishment had this leverage or clout and they could remind people and uh, they didn't understand that depth of class resentment. And they themselves had suffered, not all of them, but a few of them suffered from a class snobbery. So when I see people come up to me and say, you write for National Review or you write nationally, I'm mad at, and they say Charles Cronheimer or George, and sometimes they're, it, it, I shouldn't say sometimes, most of the times it's, their anger is class-based. And the fact that they were not successful in convincing enough people, even though it's perhaps in this particular case, the never Trump people, the 10% who didn't vote who were Republican, I have a feeling that even though that was historically the same as other non-participation, say with McCain, this 10% I think was a little bit different. And so they did have an effect there. The final thing was um, there were three outcomes, a close race in which Trump lost, a, a, the outcome in which Trump won, and then the landslide. And as the summer wore on, and the more that I talked to people, none of them for National Review who were never Trump, but other people, I won't mention their names, it came very clear to me they were invested in only one outcome, and that was a landslide Trump defeat, so that it would show the world how long, the country how long they had been, it would be a catharsis, and out of the ruins would be a sort of a phoenix, Edmund Burke type of conservatism, and we'd get rid of these people. And then uh, had Trump lost by one or two points, they were very afraid in the electoral call. They would be blamed for it, and they didn't want that. And so Hillary, obviously, uh, his victory over Hillary, they never, that wasn't, a, they just never contemplated it. So what, what I'm getting at is I think they became invested in a landslide. They wanted him to fail, and they, they doubled down. So people kept writing the same thing and, and different, different ways of saying that he's a Bulgarian and he's awful. And the, the reaction was, I've heard it before, okay, what's next? And so, and I think you, people like yourself realize it was an anomaly where the Republican nominee couldn't be endorsed by flagship 
magazines and things. We never had that before that I can. Not recently. Anyway. Not recently. So if if the uh, if many never Trumpers are today looking at the bright side of a Trump presidency, yeah. what worries you? You wanted him to win. Mm-hmm. What do you worry about? What consequences do you fear after he's won? With the Trump presidency, right? I mean, well, in, in, invert the never Trump euphoria. Yeah. Well. I am worried uh, in two diametrically opposite fashions. And one is that people come in and say, uh, we were wrong, but you have to now be establishmentarian and we have the Romney apparatus. And if they do that, they're going to destroy what I think is a revolution. And that is, he appealed to 30% of the minority community on class issues so that they sort of voted like Appalachian whites. He did that by not what Never Trumper said, by forsaking the conservative agenda, but by cheating on two or three issues, trade, maybe open borders. And so I think he could, I, I really wanted to keep that coalition. So when what I, do you mean by cheating? Well, I mean, cheating in the sense and saying I'm a conservative, but I don't believe in absolutely open trade. Or I'm a conservative, but I want to deport people who have committed a felony, which wasn't quite the mainstream conservative position, maybe until recently. Or I don't want to touch Social Security entitlements. I want to grow the economy and supposedly we'll have money. But just to clarify, you think he means those things or you think he said them to get elected? I I think that he, he believes in something, I don't know how he would articulate it, but he believes in fair rather than free trade. I don't think he's going to touch entitlements. And those are positions that he feels are essential to keep this coalition of Reagan Democrats, blue collar, whatever we call them. So I, I like to find a way to keep that for Republicans in general. And then the other thing I'm afraid of is that um, there's not going to be a coherence in, in foreign policy, that it's going to be reactive because he doesn't have a lot of experience and he doesn't quite know. Uh, I think John Bolton would be an excellent choice, and I think he thinks that. But if I collate what he said about foreign policy, it's antithetical to what John Bolton has written about it. So I don't know how you're going to square that circle. But we'll see. He's a Jacksonian, I hope. But we'll see. That's I, I worry about that. And what I'm worried th- about this coalition, that it can stay together, because if it stays together, it will really hurt the Democratic Party for a long time. But... Isn't there a risk that it will hurt the Democratic Party and benefit the Republican Party, but not necessarily the country? Well, if I look at where we are today, and let's just say for the purposes of argumentation that it would stay that way, so we would renegotiate NAFTA and we would renegotiate the tricip- or get rid of the Pacific trade deal versus redoing the tax code, which I think everybody... Un- agrees he'll do, and getting rid of Dodd-Frank, and getting rid of the inheritance tax, and fracking on federal lands, and exporting coal, and building Keystone, and doing some good things, the Department of Education, things like that, I think, and vouchers. For me, it's a no-brainer that the advantageous positions outweigh the the downside. Do you think Trump exists in parallel with a traditional Republican majority, or do you think that that the two have been fused? In other words, do we have a House that is more Paul Ryan-esque, a Senate that is more traditionally Reaganite, and then Donald Trump, 
or is the party much closer than critics of Trump believe? I think they're both kind of deluding themselves because I think now the Republicans are saying Trump did for them what their preferred candidates would have not done because he appealed to a different type of voter. So they got things out of Trump the day after the election they never would have gotten from any other, even George W. Bush in 2000, 2004. So they like that. And they think they have an agenda that actually in 80% of the cases is Trump. And Trump's, I think, believes that he has an agenda in 80% of the cases that he can use them to get past. And then the things that they will inevitably disagree about, I don't know how they're going to resolve that, but it's going to come up on trade if he, or it's going to come up on foreign policy. And we'll see what happens at that point. If he goes over to the Middle East and he has a meeting with Putin and he says, basically, we've got to get rid of ISIS, and getting rid of ISIS means that, that genocidal Assad gets a free pass, that's going to cause a lot of problems. My final question is, you suggested that there was a reaction among the uh, elite conservative pundit class against Trump's vulgarity. Mm-hmm. But not everything that he said that caused consternation was stylistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some comments that, that should, I think, worry people. On freedom of the press, for example, mm-hmm. he seems to be quite litigation happy. He wanted to open up the libel laws and so forth. Do you think that was bluster? or I think it... I, under, I was worried too, but again, this is what I was confused and dumbfounded by, is that if I took the amount of words written about that comment about the press versus what Obama had done to the AP reporters, for example, or what we read in the subversion of a free press through WikiLeaks, where you had these columnists checking in the Democratic Party or trying to subvert free speech during the debate. I didn't see the same commiserate amount of anger. So this is what I was baffled by. I said said to myself, I, I can see the point that Trump said something that was reckless about a Mexican so-called quote-unquote Mexican judge, but did people are people outraged what Obama said? Are they outraged what Hillary said? And I can understand that we have to police our own and all of that stuff, but I think that's what people were dumbfounded. They would say, this columnist again and again and again and again is making this point, and he's not using the same amount of time and effort and words to, to apply that level of critique toward the enemy. And to clarify, the columnists you're talking about are on the right. They're not yes, the- yeah. so I, and they would ask me about this. And I do interviews and people say, well, why did so-and-so go after him every week? And can he just one week take a vacation and go after Hillary to the same degree or go after Obama? And I said, well, it's partly that people within a family are, are hypercritical or they feel that conservatives have to have a higher bar. I don't know what it is, but it's a little bit like that. But part of it was emotional, that I'm never Trump. He's awful, and things are going to result from that statement and my influence. And then when things didn't result, they doubled down and said, well, they didn't result because did, people didn't hear me. So I'm going to write again. I'm going to get on TV. I'm going to save things. And then nothing happened. And they said, I'm going to really, really, really do it. And what happened is as you watch your close friends, you, you saw them just like the proverbial painting themselves into a corner. And at the end, the only way out was to say, I kind of overdid it. And the, the results were not as bad as I thought. And we can work with it. And it's better than Hillary. And, but they couldn't get out of that, that corner. And I had a lot of friends that I've known for 30 years that kind of, I, I, I can't believe the things they, they wrote, you know. Well, Victor Davis Hansen, thank you very much. Thank you. 
For the Hoover Institution, I'm Charles Cook. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.